Brothers and sisters, in this week we complete our look at the pillars of Islam. A look which focuses on the moral principles behind the pillars. It is the duty of each and every one of us to know the details of the pillars of Islam. To know what invalidates them and what validates them. However, the focus of the khutbah has been on the moral principles. As this is an area which is often neglected and it is such a critical area that Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam summed up the whole message of Islam as being a moral message, saying, "Innama bu'ithtu li utemmi makarim al-akhlaq." Indeed, I was sent only to perfect for you the highest of moral character traits. That is the essence of Islam. That the principles of practice, which we call the pillars of Islam, and the principles of faith or belief, which we call the pillars of faith or Iman, their goal ultimately is to create the highest moral individual that can be. <clears throat> to create a human being in which all of the highest of moral character traits as defined by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all of these traits are manifest. As the Prophet character described by Aisha radiallahu anha, his wife, when she said, al-Qur'an. His character was the Qur'an. It's the Qur'anic character. That highest moral character is the Qur'anic character. So each and every pillar is geared towards developing one or other aspect of that Qur'anic character. One who is morally correct in his or her relationship with Allah. And we said that the essence of correctness in the moral relationship with the Creator is Tawheed. 
that we worship Allah alone, sharing with no one that worship, that it is directed in its fullness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, because He alone deserves our worship. And that is the essence of moral character with regards to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as regards human beings, it is the sharia. That is the sharia. The sharia defines for us the relationships between human beings. We live as a community, we don't live as individuals. Islam does not support monasticism where we go off to the top of a mountain and live our lives there, seeking to worship God. Unless, as the Prophet ﷺ had said, we are in the times where there is so much corruption that the only place that we can practice our religion is in a mountaintop. So we flee there for the sake of our religion. Under normal circumstances, when we haven't reached that stage, we function in a society. We have neighbors, we have friends, we have colleagues, we have associates. We are in need of them and they are in need of us. So we are interacting with them. There needs to be rules which define how that interaction should be. What is considered morally corrupt, sinful, and evil in that interaction is riba, interest. Usury, the old name. That is morally corrupt and evil. Despised by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Blameworthy, punishable on the day of judgment, if not in this life. So the sharia defines for us how that relationship should be. The moral evil of riba may be visible and clear to some of us, and it may not be to others. But if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has defined a particular relationship as morally evil, then it is a responsibility for us to accept that definition and to avoid it. Because some of us, as they say, we can't see beyond our nose. We put money in the bank, and we get that money back plus extra money. So what's so evil about that? That's not being able to see beyond our noses. Reality is that the third world, which is suffering at the hands of the first world, fundamentally suffers as a result of riba, the debt that they owe 
that they're unable to pay back. Not just the debt, they're not even able to pay back the interest on the debt. So what happens is that when they're caught like this, then the first world countries are able to control their economies. They're able to dictate to them what they should buy, what they should sell, not to the advantage and the benefit of the people of that society, but to the benefit of the people of the first world. That's the reality. And that is the consequence. That evil consequence, maybe 1,400 years ago, it couldn't be seen. That evil consequence couldn't be seen. Now we live it. We see it. It's real. But whether we can see it or we, or we cannot, when Allah defines it as evil, then it is our obligation to accept it as evil. And so on and so forth with regards to our relationship with this world that we live in. Not only the human beings, but the creatures, the vegetation, the air, the environment, etc. We have to benefit from it as it has been given to us by Allah for our benefit. But at the same time, we have a responsibility to look after it, to protect it, and to pass it on to the generation to come in a way which is beneficial. But at the same time, we don't go to extremes where we will spend huge amounts of money to save the elephants from extinction. There are people hunting elephants and killing them for their tusks, etc. And we're running out of elephants. We don't spend multi-millions to save the elephants while allowing hundreds of thousands of human beings to starve. We have our priorities in place. Morality demands it. Unfortunately, the morality of Western civilization today gives more priority to animals than they do to human beings. That is reality. Morality is to put these responsibilities in their proper place, in their proper order. We prioritize. So, to the last of the pillars, Hajj. Hajj, which is a principle at its root 
providing for those who do it. Purification. As Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu had said, whoever performs hajj, which is accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, hajj mabrur, he or she returns home from hajj, pure from sin, like the day they were born. So, it is a great purifier. It is an obligation on each and every one of us who is able. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala defined it in the Quran. Each and every one of us who can find our way there should do so at the earliest opportunity. Not something to be delayed. As we are often told by our ignorant elders, when we seek to make Hajj, they tell us, No, you're still young. Wait until you get older. You're still committing many sins. When you have run out of steam, now is the time for you to go to make Hajj and clean it all up. This is not the philosophy of Hajj. That is a sinful philosophy. Though it might seem logical. Yeah. Why make Hajj when you still have you're still young and committing a lot of sins. That's quite logical. Better to do it when you, you're old. You can't do too many more sins. You run out of steam. You can't, don't have the energy to commit any more sins. So make hajj then. So you can clean up everything that went before. Very logical. But evil. It's satanic. As logical as it sounds, it's satanic. Because Prophet Muhammad had said, Innamal Amal Bilmiyat. Deeds are judged according to their intentions. Deeds are judged according to their intentions. So if our intention is not to go to Hajj for the sake of Allah, to fulfill that obligation which Allah has prescribed on us. وَلِلَّهِ الْنَاسِ حِجُّ الْبَيْتِ مَنْ اسْتَطَعَ عَلَيْهِ سَبِيلًا If it's not to fulfill that obligation which Allah has placed on our shoulders, then we will not gain what we sought from it. Because what is not done for the sake of Allah, for Allah's pleasure, will not be rewarded by Allah.
حج حج has so much in it when we look at the prophet's hajj sallallahu alaihi wasallam as recorded by his companions it is filled with many many lessons and it is our duty to know them and to teach them to our children that they would learn from the hajj There were so many incidences which took place which bring out so many different aspects of Islam and its principles concepts that this venue is not a place to try to go into it is a course of study but just to give an example of some of the things which happened in the hajj of the prophet ﷺ from which we can learn the prophet muhammad ﷺ, during the hajj saw a companion carrying his mother on his back carrying her as he made tawaf around the kaaba and he asked the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam Does this fulfill my obligation to my mother, O Messenger of Allah? And he told him, "What you are doing is not even equivalent to a single contraction that she felt in delivering you." Who among us can imagine carrying our mothers on our backs and making tawaf? That's a major act. But the Prophet ﷺ said, that's not even equivalent to a single contraction that his mother experienced in delivering him. That addresses the position of the mother in Islam. and all that comes along with it and rejects the attempts of western civilization to destroy that motherhood to take the mother out of the home throw her into the workplace turn her into a man competing with other men it addresses that and more but that's just an incident Another occasion during the Hajj Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam saw an old man walking for Hajj between his two sons one son on either side carrying him he had his arm over their shoulders and they were carrying him So the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam asked why doesn't he ride Prophet Muhammad sallallahu did Hajj riding on a camel. He said, "Why didn't he ride? He can ride an animal and go. Why is he doing that?" They said, "Well, he made a vow. He made a vow that he would walk to Hajj. He's an old man. 
So the Prophet ﷺ told them that it would be better for him to break his vow, pay the expiation, and ride. Islam doesn't call on us to put ourselves into difficulty unnecessarily. As Allah said, إِنَّ اللَّهِ يُحِبُّ لَكُمُ الْيُسْرَ وَلَا يُحِبُّ لَكُمُ الْعُسْرَ Allah wishes for us ease and not difficulty. That is the basic principle in the deed. Not unnecessary difficulty. We don't create difficulties for ourselves. Though it is true that the greater the difficulty in doing an act, the greater the reward. Prophet had said that for one who has difficulty in reading the Qur'an, pronunciation is difficult, whatever, it's a struggle. Arabic is difficult for him. But he struggles with it and tries to read that Qur'an and understand it. He gets double the reward for one for who it is. He gets double the reward. But that doesn't mean that we put ourselves into unnecessary difficulty. Just two examples from Hajj. And there are many, 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 many more. But in terms of the personality, the character, the moral principles that we should extract from Hajj, the essential moral principle is one of patience. <coughs> patience. Because Hajj is a time of difficulty. People, three million, crushed together in one location. People will step on each other's toes. What do you do? How do you respond? Allah said, فَلَا رَفَثَ وَلَا فُسُوقَ وَلَا جِدَالَ فِي الْحَجِّ There should be no evil, corrupt behavior, argumentation, ill dealings in hajj. Somebody steps on your toe, you say, ma'alish, this is the time. Not ma'alish when you step on their toe. You say, excuse me. Sorry. When they step on your toe, you say, no problem. It's okay. And if we can't do that, then we have no hajj. Our hajj is destroyed. So there has to be patience in hajj. And that patience is a critical principle in each and every one of our lives. The moral principle of patience, to be a patient individual. And it's a struggle, each and every one of us. Because we were created with a hasty nature. That is our nature. But we are 
call to patience. And it is something that we have to strive for. There are few people who Allah blesses with patience naturally. But the majority of us have to work on it. We have to strive for it. We have to restrain ourselves. We have to control our anger. We have to develop patience. As the Prophet ﷺ said, Whoever pretends to be patient, trying to be patient, then Allah will give him or her patience. We have to we have to try. Dua alone is not enough. Oh Allah, give me patience. As we are impatient. No. We have to make that effort. And Allah will give it to us. The other moral characteristic is the universalist personality. That personality which is free from tribalism. Hajj calls us to the oneness of humankind. Though human beings divide themselves up, families, tribes, nations, Languages and their affinities because of them. But Hajj teaches us to look beyond that to the oneness of humankind. As we have one God, we have one human race. All responsible to worship that one God. So the Hajj mentality is one who doesn't see people, look at people in terms of their forms, their shapes, their colors, their nationalities, but looks at each other as human beings before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Allah said, إِنَّا أَكْرَمَكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهِ أَتْقَابُمْ That the most noble among you is those who fear Allah the most. So that is the criteria. When we look at each other and we honor some more than we honor others, the basis for that honor is not because so-and-so is from my country, from my family, from my tribe, because of his money, his position, etc., but because of taqwa. Because he or she fears Allah the most. That is the Hajj personality. And that is what caused others before to be transformed in Hajj. People go to Hajj and they come back transformed from that experience. Because they were able to Take from that divine gathering 
a gathering blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They were able to take from the spirit of that gathering that which would transform and to change their lives. And that was the example set by Prophet Muhammad which is why Allah instructed us in the Quran saying, Inna Allah wa malaikatahu yusalluna ala nabi Ya amanu sallu alayhi wa sallimu taslima Allah commanded us to ask for peace and blessings for the Prophet as he and the angels bless because of that example that he gave, that he lived in his very wives, chosen from a variety of backgrounds. It was not his sunnah to only marry his relatives, which unfortunately is the norm today for Muslims. Wherever we go, we find Muslims marry their cousins. But that wasn't the sunnah of Prophet Muhammad He did marry cousin. One out of nine wives that he had at one time, one was a cousin. The rest weren't. So we have to say his sunnah, his greater sunnah was not to do so. His marrying one permitted it showed its permissibility. Okay, not preference. So, we need to follow his example and break down those barriers and bring the societies back together again. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to remove the tribalism and nationalism from our hearts and to replace it with a love for Islamic brotherhood and sisterhood, and a love for Allah and the faith of Islam. And I ask Allah to give us patience, patience in our dealings in this world, and patience to worship Him sincerely and consistently. And I ask Allah to allow us to die and to leave from this world as believers. Amen. The world's first tuition-free degree, BA in Islamic Studies. Access to the knowledge, any place, anytime, anywhere. It just doesn't get any easier than that. Classes, texts, assignments, completely online. Set your own schedule for the semester. No overseas travel required for the exams. Subjects taught by qualified English-speaking scholars. Weekly live sessions in virtual classrooms with curricula based on those in El Medina University in Saudi Arabia, El Azhar University in Cairo, and other reputable institutions around the world. Why wait any longer? You pay just a symbolic registration fee and are ready to begin the adventure of higher education. The most diverse student body of any university in the world, 130,000 plus registered students from 217 countries. Log in to the website for more details. www.islamiconlineuniversity.com